We're in First uh, Corinthians chapter 13 tonight. A couple of weeks ago where we left off. At the end of chapter 12, uh, Paul had just finished his uh, discussion about all of the various spiritual gifts that apparently the Corinthian church was very, very familiar with. And of course we've mentioned that those are some of, but not all of, the spiritual gifts that are mentioned in the New Testament. Uh, but uh, those that are mentioned in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 were uh, discussed over the last several weeks. And now in chapter 13, Paul is going to somewhat deviate from the discussion of spiritual gifts to enter into a discussion of something that he basically introduced at the end of chapter 12, and that is a more excellent way. That's how he put it in verse 31 of chapter 12. Earnestly desire the best gifts, he had told them, and yet I show you a more excellent way. So what is that more excellent way? Well, he goes right into that uh, in chapter 13, and that's the topic of the, the, the whole chapter, actually. And it's most interesting that he puts it here, but keep in mind that it's not a deviation from his train of thought at all. It's basically... Uh, an emphasis on what he had actually already said all the way back in chapter 8 where he talked about the fact that knowledge puffs up but love edifies. And he talked about the need for us as believers to be careful not to offend others, to edify our brothers and sisters in the Lord, which means to lift them up, to encourage them, to strengthen them in their faith. But... Um, Love is what actually is the overriding characteristic that Paul now introduces back into this great letter because he wants them to realize that it is indeed a better way than the spiritual gifts are in terms of edification, although the spiritual gifts were intended for that purpose, to edify each other in the body. The Corinthian church didn't really have the best understanding of that. And so Paul has spent most of his time in this letter correcting the Corinthian church on many different uh, sides, even though he had started out by saying that they are behind none of the churches in regard to the spiritual gifts. In other words, they were very familiar with all of the gifts that he's mentioned here, but he also said in chapter 3 that they were a carnal group of Christians because of their allowing other things to enter into the fellowship of believers that should not have been present. Whether it had to be do, dealing with uh, the uh, the way that they treated each other in uh, bringing themselves to before the courts of the civil courts, or whether there was a situation in the, the chapter 5 that we looked at that uh, indicated that they were allowing abnormal sexual behavior to be condoned in the church, the way that they treated each other at the uh, Lord's table for the breaking of bread and the wine, all of those things that were being done in Corinth that Paul has already addressed, and unfortunately there will be other things as well that need to be uh, dealt with. But here in chapter 13, it's one of the most profound statements with regard to this beautiful topic of love. And you know, as I think about the word love, of course, in our language, we use love for a lot of different things. 
But uh, consider the fact that love is such a major characteristic of humanity that it occupies so much of our lives. All the movies that are focused on that one topic of love, all the poems that are focused on that one topic of love, all of the um, songs that we all are familiar with. You know, you can all of us, we can all of us, I believe, think of many, many different phrases that are associated with the word love in both music and in prose and in poetry. And, you know, one of the more common ones that perhaps we all are familiar with is love means never having to say, I'm sorry. It came from a movie back in the 70s. Happened to be the first movie that Sandy and I actually saw together as a young couple just starting our dating experience. And and the love story was the name of the the, the, the movie. And that was one of the lines in the movie that stuck out in my mind. And, uh, of course, if you're familiar with it, you probably would remember the movie as well. But there are other things that we talk about with regard to love that we sort of mix the general meaning of love in our English language. The Greek language was far different. In the Greek language, there were four at least different words for love, and they distinguished a particular kind of love from other kinds of love by using each of those four words. There was the word in Greek called eros. Eros was kind of the love of passion. As a matter of fact, we get the word erotic from the Greek word eros. There's another word that's not in the Bible directly called stergo. And stergo is kind of a uh, a familiarity with somebody. Uh, um, it's not really a true love in the sense of great affection, but it is showing some degree of affection. Um, there is a negative of that word in the book of Romans uh, in chapter 1, ostergo, which means not affiliated with love. But that love, again, is, is not a very strong love. It's just basically a friendship kind of a love or a familiarity kind of a love. And then there's phileo, which is the Greek word that is used for uh, brotherly love. And, of course, the city of Philadelphia is a city of brotherly love. And phileo is that kind of love, a familial love. The love that you might find between brother and sister or other relatives, father and mother. But the love that Paul is going to use here is, of course, agapao or agape love. And agape is attributed to God most often as the kind of love that is selfless. And it's used as the love that God has manifest for us in everywhere that it's referenced with regard to the Lord God Almighty, uh, it is always the word agape or agapo uh, in the uh, Greek language. And that love is, again, a selfless love. And that's the love that Paul is referring to in this particular chapter. And so many different places in the New Testament especially, we find that God's love is mentioned in a very, very wonderful way and that his love is enduring, it's everlasting. His love is beyond our love. We love because he first loved us. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And uh, behold, 
what manner of love the Father has given unto us, His children, that we should be called the children of God. All of those various things express a love of God or from God that surpasses pretty much every kind of human love that we can manifest. But Paul emphasizes that that is indeed the kind of love that we should have. And this love, this agape love, is not just a feeling. It's not just a, an idea. It is an active love. And he's going to bring that out in our study tonight. We should see that very clearly. So we're going to be looking at a couple, a couple of other places as well. But we're going to focus, first of all, on what Paul the Apostle tells us about this wonderful fruit. Not a gift, but fruit of the Spirit. As a matter of fact, in Philippians chapter 2, that's precisely what Paul says about love. The fruit of the Spirit is love. And then he adds joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, kindness, self-control, all of those other uh, effects of the fruit of love that uh, sometimes are simply known collectively as the fruit of the Spirit. But love is always the first mentioned and is a reason for it. It's because it is the primary fruit of the Spirit of God. That's why Paul says in, again, chapter 12, verse 31, I will show you a more excellent way. Note that he doesn't say, I will show you a more excellent gift. It's not a gift. It shouldn't be confused with the gifts. But it is a way of manifesting the gifts so that the gifts can be utilized in the body, in love, in order for the edification of the church to be complete. So verse 1 of chapter 13 says this, Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I have become sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, but have not love, it profits me nothing. Take note of the fact that Paul is saying we can do all kinds of very, very good things and we can have all kinds of spiritual gifts manifest in our lives. But if it is all of it done or any of it done without love, it is of no value. It has no effect. It profits us nothing. And that's important. That's a very, very important thing for us to remember. And... Jesus would agree. In fact, in the book of Revelation, in chapter 2, one of the letters, in fact, the first letter that is recorded that Jesus gave to the Apostle John to share with the seven churches in Asia was sent to the church at Ephesus. And in that letter, Jesus says these things. Chapter 2 of the book of Revelation Jesus is speaking to the church, to the angel of the church of Ephesus, right? These things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those that are evil. And you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not and have found them to be liars. Jesus is recognizing that these people in Ephesus were really very, very good at representing Christ in a way that would honor him normally. They're doing good things. They have uh, kept 
the word. They have labored hard in their ministry to one another and in their ministry to the Lord. They have done what was necessary to not bear what was evil or allow what was evil in their midst. And they were very, very careful to make sure, to test to make sure that the people who were claiming to be apostles were in fact apostles. And if they found them to be liars, they made it so evident that they understood that to be the case. However, in all of that which the Lord has commended them for, take note of what he says next. And you have persevered and have patience and have labored for my name's sake and have not become weary. Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Is love important? Remember the song Tina Turner saying, what's love got to do with it? Well, I submit to you that love has everything to do with it. Because without love, none of that which the Ephesian church was doing, apparently from Jesus' perspective, was of any value. And that's what Paul is saying here in this First Corinthians chapter 13 portion of the letter. You could speak in tongues and you could prophesy and you could have all knowledge. You could have faith to move mountains, but without love, it profits you Nothing. Those are strong words. And so as wonderful as this chapter is with regard to uh, the, the love that God has expressed toward us and wants us to express toward each other and to him, the bottom line is that if we're doing it without love, we're missing the mark, greatly missing the mark. So this is actually a warning to the church as well as and making us aware of the beauty, of the majesty, of the glory of our God in his love for us. So chapter 13 has begun with this warning, this, this statement that basically Paul is saying, be wise in your understanding and don't allow yourselves to be caught up in anything like spiritual gifts, or any other thing that would detract from your love of God and of one another. Jesus had said in John chapter 13, and you can go there with me if you'd like, John chapter 13, in verses 34 and 35, Jesus was talking to his disciples and he said this, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, as I have loved you, that you also love one another. And by this, all will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. In other words, they will know us by our love. That's an important thing. Jesus said in the Gospels elsewhere, in Matthew's Gospel, we'll be looking at that perhaps in the next couple of weeks, that Jesus' words to a young scribe was to say to him that the most important Law, commandments, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second, he said, is like unto it, love your neighbor as yourself. That's important. Love your enemies, even. That's important. He told us to do that in the Sermon on the Mount. Everywhere throughout the teachings of Jesus and the New Testament writings of the Apostles, Paul and Peter and John, they all emphasized the need for loving one another as being paramount in our relationships that we have with each other and with God. So Paul continues and says, 
what some call a definition of love, but I don't really know that you could call this a definition. This is the characteristics of love given by the Apostle Paul, and it's, again, mostly active. Take note of the fact that it is not a passive thing. It is not a feeling. It is not an emotion. It is not an idea. It is not a philosophy. It is something that we need to be very, very careful to act out in our lives. For he says in verse 4, Love suffers long and is kind. Long-suffering. That's important. How many of us are willing to kind of allow ourselves to just say, okay, I'll, I'll deal with that another time. It offended me, but I'm not really going to say anything to harm that individual or to discourage that individual. I'm not going to try to set the record straight. I'm going to be long-suffering and be patient, and hopefully the conversation will move in a different direction or the situation will change where the uh, becoming obvious to the other person that which is obvious to you. Long-suffering, it's an important characteristic, and it requires the ability to overlook, to be patient and kind. That's why he puts the two together, long-suffering and kindness. And then he says, love does not envy. You know, jealousy and envy are two very, very negative characteristics from a human point of view. Now, as far as God is concerned, we're told in more than one place that God is a jealous God. And that jealousy that is expressed there is expressed because God's jealousy is a jealousy that has to do with His having chosen us and we are His and there is no other God that should be occupying our attention because He's a jealous God. He's saying, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. And so that's important as far as God is concerned. His jealousy is based upon his wanting us to know that we are his. But envy is something a little bit deeper than jealousy. You know, we can be jealous about somebody else's possessions, for instance. But when we envy that person, we're taking it a step further, aren't we? We're basically saying, I want that person to take it from him and for me to have it instead of him. That's envy. That's where it's gone to a place where it should never have gone. Paul says love is not envious. Love does not envy. Love is not jealous. Then he says in verse 4, love does not parade itself. Hmm. It's not puffed up. That's what he said in chapter 8. Knowledge puffs up. Love edifies. But parading itself, love's not going to be saying, I did this, and I deserve attention because of what I did. That's not love. Love doesn't parade itself. Love doesn't make itself to be seen by others. Love does everything. Like Jesus once said, let not your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Kind of love. So those are the things that are active and mostly negative about the things that are to be seen as what love is not. He goes on and says in verse 5, love does not behave rudely, unseemly. Love isn't rude. Love cares for others. 
And rudeness is something that we should never allow ourselves to involve our thinking process to engage. Love does not behave rudely. It does not seek its own. It's not seeking to find somebody to say, oh, look at him, look at her. It's not provoked. Sometimes we can be provoked to jealousy. We can be provoked to anger. We can be provoked to mistrusting somebody because of other people's actions. We should not allow other people to infect us by provoking us to do evil or to think evil thoughts. Love, in fact, at the end of verse 5, extends that and says, it thinks no evil. We need to be careful what we think of others. And we need to be careful how we respond to others in whatever they, that may be that they, are, might, they might be doing to us or talking about us behind our backs or whatever it is. Love does not get any of these characteristics that he's just mentioned, if it's true love. Continuing on in verse 6, he says, Love does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. Iniquity, evil thoughts, lead to evil actions. Iniquity is something that God forgives, but we have to bring them to him. You know, many different places in the Word of God where the saint, the child of God, cries out to God in the Psalms especially, Oh, forgive me of my iniquities. Forgive me of my transgressions. Forgive me of my sins. The iniquities are something that we consider, that we allow our thoughts to process. And then ultimately, if we allow that to continue, we end up allowing those thoughts to manifest themselves in actions. But love does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in truth. Whatever is true, whatever is pure, whatever is holy, think on these things, Paul tells us. Verses 7 and following talk mostly about some other things, but primarily positive ideas that are related to this active love that we ought to be engaging in. He says in verse 7, love bears all things. I want you to take note of the two words repeated here, all things. Not some things, not most things, but all things. And apparently, all things means the same in the Greek language as it does in our language. It means all things, everything. Love bears all things. Now, it's interesting, the word that is translated bears in this translation that I'm reading is probably better translated covers because it's like the idea of an umbrella covering us in the rain. It's a protective thing. Love bears the burdens of others but also protects others from danger. Love bears all things. It believes all things. And I submit to you that what Paul is saying here is with regard to what the Word of God declares, believes all things that the Word of God declares. But it also implies that we are to believe what others say without trying to figure out, are they telling the truth? Just accepting it for what it is. Now, if it is not truth, the Spirit of God certainly is capable of revealing that to us. 
And if it is something that is not truth, that is against the word of God or against a brother or sister, then it needs to be dealt with. But love doesn't just go out and challenge. Love is willing to accept what is being said without causing an argument. Because if you enter into a, a, a conflict because of what you've heard somebody else say, it can so, so easily get out of hand. And love is lacking when we do such things. There is a time for those things to take place. But we're told that we are to do things in love only. If we have to deal with an issue that is a result of what somebody has said or done, it must be done in love. Kind of like saying in our judicial system, innocent until proven guilty. The last one that he mentions is probably the most important of all. Love never fails. Verse 8. Love never fails. We have, many of us, perhaps miserably failed in our lives, and perhaps more often than we could count. But we also know that God's love is a love that certainly never does fail. And when we do fail, He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I love that passage of Scripture that tells us these things. So we may end up failing, but it's not because of love that we fail. Love never fails. That's a, a truth. That is a statement that we can take to the bank. And it's the kind of love that God wants us to express with our brothers and sisters. Love never fails. All of the other characteristics that we've looked at are so very important as well. But this is the most important, I believe, of all of those characteristics that Paul here has introduced to us in this wonderful love chapter that is so fondly and commonly referred to. Love is a strong emotion and it is a strong means by which we can relate to one another in a way that will please our Lord. Without love, everything else fails. And I'm sure that you probably have heard the suggestion that if you were to put Jesus' name before all of these activities that are mentioned here in this particular portion of Scripture that we've just read with regard to love, and read it with Jesus' name, you find a perfect fit. Jesus suffers long and is kind. Jesus does not envy. Jesus does not parade himself. Jesus is not puffed up. Jesus does not behave rudely. Jesus does not seek his own, is not provoked. Jesus thinks no evil. Jesus does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. Jesus bears all things. Jesus believes all things. Jesus hopes all things. Jesus endures all things. He endured the cross. That's proof of that. And Jesus never fails. But of course, if we put our name there instead, it's worth looking at carefully and making sure 
that we don't overlook some of those things where we fall somewhat short in these actions because it really is true that every one of us would have to find at least one of those that we're not very good at. Norman suffers long and is kind. Uh, I think maybe I could say that. Norman does not envy. Not a problem for me. Norman does not parade himself. I hope not. I don't intend to, but do I? Norman... <sighs> does not behave rudely, is not puffed up. Norman does not seek his own. Norman's not provoked. Norman thinks no evil. I think by now you would say, and I do, I've been slain by the word of God. But there's always God's wonderful, perfect solution. Confession. And when we confess our sins to a loving Heavenly Father, you know the results. Well, now Paul is going to continue, after having said in verse 8 that love never fails, that there are some other things that he wants to say with regard to the gifts. For he says in verse 8, whether there are prophecies, they will fail. Whether there are tongues, yeah, they will cease or come to an end. Whether there is knowledge, it will vanish away. Now, in the original Greek language, prophecies will fail and knowledge will vanish away. It's actually the same word in the Greek. It means the same thing. However, with regard to the words that are spoken of in the middle of that context where he's talking about tongues, the spiritual gift of tongues, he says tongues will cease, come to an end. It's a different word, and it's partly the cause of much misunderstanding with what Paul is saying here and what Paul will say next. So I submit to you that there is no real difference that Paul intended with these three statements. He's just being a Jewish writer who likes to emphasize different words with slightly different meanings for the same basic thought. And I say that because some people would argue that because Paul said tongues will cease, that some or all of the gifts ceased with the bringing of the totality, totality or the finishing work of the canon of Scripture in the first century. So that there's no need for the gifts of speaking in tongues or any of the other gifts because of what they believe Paul is saying here. That's not so at all. And I'll try to show you why I believe that to be the case in the following verses. He says in verse 9, For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. That's basically an admission that we don't know everything. We've been given revelation, but it's not complete revelation. It's more revelation than they had than they had in the Old Testament, certainly. But it's not everything we could know. It's just everything that we need to know in order to obtain salvation through Christ Jesus, our Lord. But Paul says, we know in part. It's not everything that 
can be known, but it's enough. And we prophesy in part. In other words, we say that, well, prophecy is teaching the Word of God, bringing forth the Word of God, or foretelling the Word of God in many different ways. Prophecy can be utilized, and it's one of the gifts of the Holy Spirit, but it's only done in part because we're not, again, given all of what we could have been given in order to be able to say more about a particular topic, just what is needed for the particular time in which the prophecy is given. So we know in part, and we prophesy in part. And then verse 10 tells us, but when that which is perfect has come, then that which is in part will be done away. Now here's where I have a problem with those who say the gifts of the Spirit ended, ceased, at the end of the first century when the canon of Scripture was complete. That's not what he's talking about here. Notice very carefully that he says, that which is in part will be done away. When? When that which is perfect is come. They would argue again that canon of Scripture is that which is perfect is come. But he goes on to say, and I'm grateful for this fact that Paul gives this because it tells us that he's not talking about the canon or the scripture. And why would he tell the Corinthian church in 54 AD that their gifts that they're using are going to end before the end of the century when the canon of scripture is filled? Why he, he could have been much more specific than that. But he wasn't because that's not what he was talking about. Verse 11 says, When I was a child, I spoke as a child. I understood as a child. I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. For now, we see in a mirror, dimly, but then face to face. Let's stop there and take a look at what Paul is saying. When I was a child, I thought as a child. I became a man and I put away childish things. In other words, I didn't need those things that I needed as a child. Now that I'm mature, I've grown, I've experienced maturity, I have become more knowledgeable. And although as a child I needed the milk of the word, now I need the meat of the word in order to satisfy my desire to know God more fully, more completely. So he says, when I was a child, I just had a childlike faith and I had childlike understanding. But I grew in maturity and I became a man and I put away those childish things and I became more of an understanding and mature individual in my faith. Verse 12 says, Now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. What's he talking about? He's talking about when that which is perfect is come. Now, he says, we see in a mirror. Then face to face. He's not talking about a completion of canon here. He's talking about face-to-face -face between individuals. And who's the other individual that he's speaking of? He's got to be speaking of Jesus. Because he goes on to say, Now I know in part, but then I shall know just as also I am known. Paul is saying this coming day when I will have knowledge that I do not have now. That, again, has nothing to do with the completion of the canon of Scripture. It has to do with being able to see our Lord face to face 
And when we see him face to face, we will no longer be seeing like in a mirror. And by the way, mirrors in those days were polished metal and so that they reflected the face, but it wasn't a clear reflection. It was something like a, 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 a fuzzy image at best. That's why he says we see in a mirror darkly or dimly. But then, in that day, when we see our Lord, we will see as we have been seen. We will know as we have been known. This can only be in that day when we go to be with him. It has to be that because that's really Paul's emphasis in the last or next to the last chapter, as we will get to. But now he sees this opportunity to explain to the people that the spiritual gifts won't any longer be needed. And that is going to happen. But it isn't at the end of the first century. They're still needed now, but they won't be needed when we go to be with him. There will be no need for prophecy. There will be no more need for hope. There will be no more need for faith. Our hope is in what he has promised that he will fulfill. It will all have been fulfilled then. Our faith is in his word. And we trust in the completion of all that has been spoken. All the prophetic statements that have been made throughout the entire word of God will have come to completion. So there will be no more need for faith. There'll be no more need for prophecy. There'll be no more need for any of those things that we rely on in this present time. But we will see him. And I want to emphasize that fact by going now to 1 John chapter 3. Would you turn there with me? 1 John chapter 3, near the end of the New Testament, just before the book of Revelation, John wrote three very short letters. In 1 John chapter 3, I quote a portion of this verse, uh, this portion of Scripture, uh, as we began our study tonight. He, John tells us, Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us, that we should be called children of God. Therefore the world does not know us, because it did not know Him. And then John tells us this, Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. Take note of the fact that he's in agreement with what Paul was saying. Now we see in a mirror dimly. Paul is saying that, and John is saying exactly the same thing in these words. Now we are the children of God, but it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. But we know Take note of that. John is very, very certain of this. We know that when he is revealed, that which is perfect has come. When he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. John is agreeing with what Paul is saying here in 1 Corinthians by saying that there is coming a day when we will see him face to face, just as Paul says here, we see now in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. And Paul says we know in part that now, but then we will know just as we also are known. John is saying we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him. That's a great promise that we all need to adhere to, hang on to. Attach ourselves to the vine and stay attached. Ab abide in me, Jesus said. And when we do so, 
we will have that wonderful experience of standing before Him. And I pray that every one of us will stand before Him unashamed. There is that danger that we might slip and fall. And when we stand before Him, if we haven't confessed our sins, it perhaps won't be as exciting for us as it might have been otherwise. But this I know. You're forgiven. I'm forgiven. And that wonderful truth, the beam of seed of Christ, when we stand before Him, all of that which is wood, hay, and stubble will be burned away. And what remains will be for His glory, precious gems and stones. Verse 3 of chapter 3, verse 3 of chapter 3 in First John says, And everyone who has this hope in Him purifies himself just as He is pure. That's what we should be striving for. Purification. Think on these things. That which is holy, that which is right, that which is just, that which is pure, that which is perfect. And know that that which is perfect will indeed become a reality before us as we continue to serve Him. There is coming a day when we will stand before our King. We will see Him face to face and we will know as we have been known. And we will know His love poured out for us in a way that we have never, ever known until then. There's so much more that we will experience in that glorious place that we can only think might be possible. When Paul the Apostle was caught up into the third heaven, Paul said, I heard things that I cannot even begin to describe. Notice that he said he heard those things, not saw he heard them. There are things that will be heard that will be beyond our imagination. Just think of it. All the angelic hosts praising the Lord together. All of us, the saints of God, singing praise to God around His throne. All of us worshiping Him forever and ever. What a glorious, wonderful experience eternity will be. We don't have to wait for that. We can experience now those blessings. All we need is love. Just like, well, one of the Beatles songs, I'm afraid, all you need is love. Everything else falls into place. Let's remember that. Everything falls into place when we love in this way that Paul prescribes for us here. And if we are successful in that, oh, what a glorious day it will be when we stand before Him and we see His loving smile looking upon us with His eyes of fire, saying, well done, good and faithful servant. Well done. 